Today I'm talking with Lizzie Webb, who some of you might know as Mad Lizzie. I grew up in the 1980s when Lizzie was the pioneering fitness expert on TVAM, one of the first breakfast shows in the UK. It honestly was groundbreaking. You would get up in the morning for school, or if you were older, you might be a student or working or possibly even retired. And Lizzie made exercise fun. She would be on a few times every morning and she would exercise to the current music in the charts or she would bring something new to you or she'd have guests and some of these guests were superstars or they were up and coming or they were people that were very interesting in relation to what Lizzie did in the industry. However, that's not how Lizzie started and it's also not what she continued to do after her 10 years on breakfast television. Lizzie has a book out, Mad About the Boys, Fame, Fitness and Teaching London's Toughest Kids. As a lecturer in colleges myself, I really relate to what she has to say in the book, but I'm also astounded at her inventiveness, again her forward thinking, and her bravery in tackling some of the most challenging students that you could ever encounter. If you've ever been a student, you're a teacher, you would like to be a teacher, you're a parent, please listen to this podcast because Lizzie is such a fascinating guest. And I'll also leave you with this thought. In 1987, the biggest selling VHS rental in the UK was Back to the Future. The biggest selling video was Lizzie Webb. Lizzie, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I'd said to you when I reached out that you're someone that I've always admired. And having read your book, the admiration is up there now. I didn't realise that you had all this knowledge of teaching, but it makes a lot of sense to me now when I think about the TV AM days. It was almost like a little mini fitness class, and I can see now where all the teaching experience came in. So would you like to tell us a little bit about your book and how it came to be? Well, it's called Mad About the Boys, and it's Mad About the Boys for two reasons. Um, I was called Mad Lizzie (laughs) um, every morning on television for 10 years when I was doing breakfast television. And I was also um, teaching in a boys' comprehensive school. That's how I started teaching my own teaching career way back in 1970. And when I was teaching them, I realized one, most of them couldn't read at the age of 15 or 16. And two, um, they loved dancing. Now this is very unusual in a boys' comprehensive school way back. This, we've all got to hear about Billy Elliot or seen Billy Elliot, but in those days, it was really unusual. So I trained these boys in my drama club in the lunch hours and after school over a few years. And I turned out four really professional dancers from the school. So I carried on after my 10 years of TV, I'm going back teaching very, very challenging children. And then in 2019, um, a journalist interviewed me and she said, Lizzie, I had no idea that you had taught so many different types of people, in particular challenging children. She said, write your memoir. And that's what happened. And what a memoir. I, coming from a teaching place myself, I feel as if everyone that is a teacher, wants to be a teacher, or is even a retired teacher, everyone could benefit from it that's in that area. Because you have so much knowledge and you come across as fearless to me because the things that you did and the situations you put yourself into, a lot of people that either have been a student or have been a teacher would be a little bit cautious of. So as well as being a really good, easy to read, I flew through it memoir, I also think it should be something that anyone who has an interest in teaching or has been or is a teacher should read. And do you feel that's something that all teachers could benefit from too? It's not just um, teachers. I think parents might benefit as well. Um, I would love teachers to read it and think, what would I do in that classroom situation? How would I approach that really challenging child? Or when I was teaching in the prison, um, the juvenile prison in Henley, where they were all boys, I was teaching those on the long stay wing. 
I was absolutely fearless. Even when I started teaching, I mean, I described the first class that I go into in the book. Um, I was never afraid. I thought, these are just children. Um, and possibly as a child, I didn't feel understood myself. And I had a very, very heavy handed father. So I don't think you forget if you have childhoods like that, that hold on a minute, I'm only a child, please don't treat me like that. So I tried to treat the boys, because it's mainly boys I taught throughout my career in teaching, um, try to remember how I felt as a child, or when I failed my 11 plus, you know, in this country, we were taking um, an exam, and if you failed, uh, you went to a secondary school rather than a grammar school. So it's those feelings of failure. So the boys I was teaching that couldn't read at the age of 15, and then more laterally, I was teaching young adults that couldn't read, that had families. Uh, it all made sense to me to do what I could to innovate with ideas, to motivate them. And in the book, you make it so clear that giving up on someone never even crossed your mind, giving up on the job never crossed your mind, and um, always coming up with new ways to do things. Credit where it's due, because I think in any job, there are a lot of people who don't feel like that and don't approach their work like that. So is that again something that's maybe just built in you? I think um, probably if I hadn't done my 10 years on Good Morning Britain, um, I wouldn't have been given the opportunities that when I came off screen um, to innovate, I've been extraordinarily lucky in my whole career where I've been allowed to experiment with ideas. So in education and on television in the morning, I was given a free hand. I mean, what a luxury for people to say, look, try what you think will work. Here are the most difficult kids we can give you. Can you turn their lives around? And then when I was on television, Greg Dyke saying, I know nothing about exercise. I'm running TVAM. Lizzie, you do what you like. Do what you think will attract the viewers. So my job on TVAM every morning was to encourage everybody at home to remind them in the few minutes I had twice in the morning to just get fit, to somehow put um, exercise or keeping on the move as part of their daily lives. So it was an absolute luxury to be given that chance to do all that. And Greg Dyke, I mean, that is a name again. And you think in today's world that how could that possibly happen where someone would say, here's a slot, do what you like. And I'd said to you again when we were previously chatting before this, that I was a kid in the 80s and I was the perfect age to dance around when you were doing the shakedown, got completely involved in it, and then you'd head off to school. And I didn't think much about it, but what a great start to the day. You are actually moving about, you're actually getting the blood flowing. Then I would eat, like I'd said previously, a really unhealthy sugary cereal, but I've moved on now, <laughs> don't do that anymore. But what you were doing was so clever because it was engaging, no doubt, as well as children. It would have been engaging students, mums, even I remember you doing like the chair workouts. It must have, you were basically speaking to everyone. And was that something, again, that people might not have realised at the time that you were putting a lot of thought and a lot of preparation into? Yes, I think a lot of people probably thought I just went on for a few minutes and kick my legs and they just put on any music, but a lot of thought. And I enjoyed in the chapters of the book explaining how I did that because you've only got two arms, two legs and the core in between. So for 10 years, every morning, it would become incredibly boring if I just repeated so many of the things I was doing. So I would dream up different ways of attracting attention because I knew there'd be a lot of people and the first thing in the morning, you're rushing around, getting ready. Um, you could be in the kitchen and hear my voice. It doesn't mean you're going to stop and join in. But it's amazing how people do recognise my voice from those 10 years. But I got the opportunity to think, what can I do that will attract attention? The music, and music has been such a big part of my life. And I think it is in most people. So they hear music, they want to jig around. They might not know what to do with it, um, but they just jig around. So the music was important. Greg said, wear what you like. Well, I don't think people want to see black in the morning, bright colours. Uh, guests, 
I had wonderful guests, so I would dream up different ways of using guests. We had a program in this country called Who's Baby? So I thought, what a good way of doing that with exercise. I'll ask famous people if their children can come on with me and exercise. So the big boxer of the day was Frank Bruno. So his two children came on. So I did boxing exercises as part of the program. Um, a friend of mine was acting with Judy Lowe and she was married to Richard O'Sullivan and their daughter was Kate Beckinsale. So Kate Beckinsale as a little girl came on with me and I did exercises that hmm, he was in a great series called Porridge. So somehow incorporated that. So there was a whole theme for the week, which made it fun. And I think that was the essence of what I was trying to say. Exercise, fitness, dance is fun. And I think sometimes people forget that. They go to the gym or they see exercise as a way of losing weight, which of course it is. But that shouldn't be the priority of doing fitness. It should be fun. And as you say, Elaine, I tried hard to do that. Oh, it came across. And look, you're the perfect example of someone that is still obviously fit and healthy. And uh, what you said there reminded me, there was two occasions where I remember calling on a landline, a friend to say, guess who's on with Lizzie? And it was, again, friends that would love a band. And obviously one was take that because we all knew someone that was crazy about them. And I also remember when the London boys were on, I knew someone that really liked them. So because I would, I've always been an early riser, you would phone someone on the landline and you knew that you could because we're all going to school and to work. So it wasn't too early. You're like, you need to watch the next one because, like, who's on? And I, I imagine that must have happened up and down the country. Phone your friend when the Chippendales were on. <laughs> I should have. I was probably a shade too young, but I bet when, I bet there were lots of people that would have. I bet at the time I would have just looked at them and thought, their muscles. I've since seen it on YouTube, and the muscles are insane. Absolutely okay. incredible. I balanced it up. I, I dreamt up this week with the Chippendales and the American group were over anyway promoting their record. And of course, the records were a huge part of it. I had people like Simon Cowell send me the music that Sunita was uh, promoting as a record to get in the charts. And I got a lot of discs on my wall in my study where they've given me discs for creating the hits because sometimes no one else was playing the music. But to go back to the Chippendales, I thought I'd best redress the balance here. I've done a week of the Chippendales. I'll do a week of page three girls. <laughs> which is what I did. So all a bit of fun. And you mentioned children earlier and you as a young girl joining in. I then realised, because the mums and dads and aunts and uncles were sending me pictures of their children standing in front of the screen copying me. So I thought, what a great way to get kids exercising if I create a character just for them that was always on the move and exercising and learning through exercise and fitness. So I created a kid's character called Joggy Bear. So that was again part of the fun of those 10 years that I had, thanks to Greg Dyke, um, all these opportunities to try different things. And again, Joggy Bear, that was a huge success too. So it seems to me as if everything that you have approached, you seem to have had that teacher's intuition where you've known what, if it is children or young adults, you seem to have been able to put yourself in the headspace of what you would be looking for if you were them. And you always seem to be spot on. Well, thank you for that. It was quite interesting when um, I resurrected Joggy Bear going into schools, and this is going back, oh, I suppose, around after I had been teaching the prison, around about 10, 2010, 2010, 2011, started going into schools and realizing once I'd been working with children that had been excluded from school in pupil referral units, um, Really, we've got to start educating from the very, very start of a child's life. It's too late me teaching them when they're coming out of prison and so forth. But I was at that time teaching adult ex-offenders and training them in my qualification using exercise um, as part of the behaviour management course, channeling that energy. 
And when I said, I'm going to do Joggy Bear and you're going to join me in primary school, they said, Lizzie, don't be daft. They might have done that years ago, not now. Kids now, they're used to using their screens all the time. They won't want to sing Joggy Bear and do all the antics that you've done with him. And they were wrong. <laughs> and they said pretty soon after going into the first school, wow, we never expected kids to enjoy singing and dancing and exercising and learning how to count through movement and exercise, even learning how to read with the programs I was doing. So fitness for me has been all my life dancing and I had the privilege of that when I was a young child, but right through my life, but not seeing it as a separate thing. It's part of what you do. And there's a beautiful picture in the book of you in a ballet pose. It's it's a gorgeous picture. And again, if anyone just thought, oh, you just roll up to TVAM and you just do some movements, not at all. You really thought it through. And again, you've got that background, not only a teacher, but a dancer, a highly trained dancer. And that leads me to, we have to talk about so many things in the book. There's a brilliant part at the end, I don't want to give everything away, but where ex-students tell a little bit about their experiences and their reflection. And one of them, it might have been Jeff, but I might be mistaken. And they say, it's you do not realise how unusual it was to say to people, my training was from a comprehensive, they just don't understand. What you did for those boys, that's not something that is easily achieved and it's not something that's easily replicated. You took people who were considered, that well, that they didn't apply themselves, that they were troublemakers. And out of all those boys, you what was it, at least four or more that you could say from 1970 had and still have exceptional careers. Is that true? It's absolutely true. I think... I think what I try to do wherever I was teaching is give life-changing opportunities. I had the fortune, although I was a very unhappy child with my father, I had the most wonderful mother and three sisters. And they gave me the greatest opportunity. So I played the violin and had a scholarship to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama on Saturday for five years. I also got into the National Youth Theatre and the days of Helen Mirren, when she was there, I learned so much from that. And also, I was, had the privilege when I failed that big exam I was telling you about, the 11 plus, of going to a private school. And in that private school, it was basically a dance and ballet school. So you did your academic work in the morning and then you're dancing in the afternoon. And then my sister was in the Royal Ballet, so I was used to going to Covent Garden. It was an incredibly privileged time. So I wanted to do for the boys something that they would never have had the opportunity. So um, the maths teacher at the school, this is going back to the 70s, called Andy Webb, wrote the most wonderful plays for the drama club. And we worked together where we put in really challenging pupils that were getting thrown out of their classes, excluded from the school, um, alongside people like Jeff that you've just mentioned, who then wanted to really dance, and he was in the fifth year at school. Now, in his 60s, he's executive producer on the very big show in America, So You Think You Can Dance. They're on their 17th season. Gary from the school, he sat watching the plays. He said, I want a bit of that. So he joined us. He started dancing in the lunch hours and after school, as did Floyd um, and Patrick. So I had four very talented boys amongst all these boys in the drama club learning how to dance with me in the school and after school, doing much, I suppose you call it funky dancing. And then Pan's People is a huge dance group on Top of the Pops on the BBC every week. And Flick Colby, the choreographer, said, oh, I want boys. I've got to move with the times. I'm going to hold an audition and create a new dance group. And I need two boy dancers. So my boys at the school said, Ian, miss, can we go along to the audition? I said, well, look, you don't know about stage schools and dance schools. There'll be hundreds of blokes there. So... Go along, do your best, but don't get disappointed. Well, Floyd actually got it, and Jeff was a reserve. 
which was amazing because they just learned dance in the school. Um, and then Floyd went on with Arlene Phillips, who created Hot Gossip. He was one of the first members there. And then Jeff and Gary and Patrick said, well, why can't we? Look, Floyd's managed to become a top dancer. So we created our own dance group and put in some girls. And it was very, very hard to earn a living. But we did as I, well, it's all in the book. We haven't enough time to go into it. They ended up being top dancers in the West End, uh, working on television in the series with all the top artists, the singers. Um, and the joy for me is we still meet together every year. They're in their 60s now, but all of them say their priority when they're auditioning or they're teaching or they're directing is the welfare of their pupils. And that to me is lovely because it, it's continuing what I set out to do. That's lovely. That's such a, a lovely tribute to your style of teaching. And another reason why I think people should buy the book is it's a great insight into behind the scenes of television. It's also really interesting to see how it was made in those days, because it just, even if you're not in television now, everything's so exposed that you've got more of an idea of what goes into it. And there seems to be more information out there about how difficult it is to get doors opened and how unapproachable people can be. And you're letting us in to see exactly how you did it, the hours that you kept that are crazy. I don't know when you slept, but also it, it seems mad now that you more or less were contacting all of these people, but then it very quickly flipped so that people were contacting you. So at the beginning, did you feel as if it was like an, a blank page for your television opportunity and you could literally just contact who you wanted or was it more or, more or less at the beginning just you yourself I'll just do it as myself and see what happens yes I mean I I was so nervous I can't tell you I shook whilst I was doing it on air because I never saw myself or wanted to be on television I never saw myself as a fitness tv presenter I had trained um, others to do it because the result of my boys being so good dancing in the boys' comprehensive school is that the top choreographer of the day said, Lizzie, you really should be teaching in all the stage schools. So I was a bit torn between carrying on teaching really challenging pupils at that time or taking the opportunity to teach my style of dancing in all the stage schools in London. So this was the era of uh, people like Bonnie Langford and Sadie Frost and people like that. So it was the most amazing time. But I didn't want to be on television myself. I was very happy to teach pupils to go on television. So it was a big shock. It was a greater shock, which I explained in the book a little bit, that there was actually no sisterhood. There was no welcoming from female presenters particularly. I mean, some of the... They hardly spoke to me. The men, like uh, Nick Owen and Mike Morris, they were great fun, the main TV presenters, and they understood my nervousness. But it was a very difficult time. And of course, now in this country, at least, people are now aware of the daytime program called This Morning, that actually what you're seeing on the sofa that looks like a very happy family behind the scenes, they're not. But the same thing happened with me and Breakfast Television, and I wrote all about this way before it came out, about this morning not being a happy family. It certainly wasn't for me, and it actually made my job um, almost difficult because I didn't enjoy going into the studios, but I was, to go back to your original question, able to pick up the phone and say to the manager of Take That, would you like the boys to come on with me? Because I can give them so much exposure. If I choreograph the dance right and they've not had a big hit, well, I didn't have to get any further. Yes, please, yes, please. And it's the same with Simon Cowell. Simon Cowell in those days had a tiny little record company with one other director, which I go into detail about in the book. And he kept sending me um, 
all Sunita's records and he just watched them climb up the charts. And I didn't realize how successful that was until I heard a beautiful record, the slowest record you could ever hear. And I thought, what exercises can I do to that? I need to give this record exposure. And I did, and it got into the charts with no record um, being played of hers. This she was called Judy Boucher on any radio station. So I realized how important the music was within the news program that we were doing. And that's, again, in the book, there's so much information about what you did for different bands, groups and people. It could be argued that you gave Simon Cowell his big break. He's given many people their break, but it could definitely be argued. There, Elaine, is that Simon learnt the power of television for actually using um, music. So he was doing that with me. Um, he was even sending me something that he thought was way off beam, um, but I was thrilled to use with my classical background. There was a group called Rondo Veneziana, and they were like a chamber orchestra, but doing very, very up-tempo pop music. And I said, oh, Simon, I'll, I'll use some tracks. I actually love this. You know, there were no vocals. It was great for me to use. I didn't have to speak over vocals. And it was amazing. It got as an album. This was not just a single into the charts. And I think Simon could see he was very astute, so astute that when I came off TVM, having worked with him about four or five years on that, he watched a programme with two guys acting called Robson and Jerome. And in this television series, they were singing a song. And Simon being Simon picked up on that and he made them a huge hit. It stayed at number one for years, just using these two actors, Robson and Jerome, singing what he'd seen on television. That was huge. I remember it well, everywhere, absolutely everywhere. So again, credit to you that you could have easily closed a door on Simon's ideas you could have said thanks but no thanks but you didn't it seems to me it was very rare that you would have said to someone I, I'm not going to look at this or that doesn't suit me you appear to always have an open mind to things I said now you say that I think I love a challenge and certainly that can't be with you tonight it's incredibly slow and if you google it in on youtube it's had millions of hits it's just the most memorable song so i i emulated the sound by doing very very round shapes so i would circle the arms and then do a waist stretch so you had the flow of the music with the flow of the exercises so I think the, the combination between the two was quite important. How lucky am I that I can choreograph? It's, it's something I learned very early on at this private school and then going and seeing so much ballet with my sister in the Royal Ballet. So again, what a privilege to be able to do that. So the joy of people learning it. I think teachers around the world will say it's an enormous privilege to teach the next generation to motivate and inspire, because if you're enthusiastic about what you do, you're going to generate an interest. Now, if I can do that with fitness and these really obese times, if I can do that in the classroom, I was doing it right up until COVID struck, um, then I think that gives one hope that you can entertain and realize that children will understand fitness isn't about just having to do pee in the school hall. It's about the freedom it gives you, the, the mental, um, it, it just absolutely lifts you once you start moving your body. I couldn't agree more. And I do think the challenge is with children, you don't always see it when you're that young. And the young adults too, quite often, exercise can be something that you see as the thing that you have to do at school when it's timetabled in. I think when you're really young, you love moving about. And then there's that danger. You can get to a certain age where you're like, do I have to? But if you can have someone like yourself that inspires you, that never changes. And I think that's what's really good about what you do. Again, I want to cover from the book beyond TVAM. What you've been doing is, again, so far and wide within 
creativity in sport. But I have to say, before we move away from TVAM, there are some things that if people around the world are just becoming familiar with you now, I actually wrote down the names because I couldn't believe it. Um, so George Harrison had you to thank. That was such a famous song. I had no idea. So it's um, got my mind set on you. To me, that was just a very popular, successful song. I had no idea that it was on course not to be until you stepped in, but you didn't realise what you were doing. I had to be honest, he was the Beatle I always fancied. <laughs> when, when the record company sent me his record, and of course he's now a solo artist at that time, um, I had to use it. And it was very up-tempo. I've got my mind, I can't sing that well. I've got my mind set on you. So that was really good for me, the rhythm of that to use. And I thought, right, you know, no one else seems to be playing this. So I'm going to keep doing it because I was able to schedule in when my things went out and when I was choosing to do it. So well, that was fabulous. So I did it. And then once records like his or anyone's got in the charts, then record, uh, that particular record will be played by um, stations around the world. So <laughs> can you imagine going home one day and, and we had little machines that would record messages and I played a message and it said, hi, this is George Harrison. I want to thank you for making my record a hit. Um, I'd like to take you out to lunch. <laughs> I thought it was George Harrison finding my number and calling me to thank little Lizzie for making his record a hit. What does that say about George Harrison? He could have got someone in his office to do that. Well, the full story is in the book. We haven't time, but yeah. um, cut a long story short, I ended up going to his enormous, stunning mansion in Henley. He was extraordinary and he gave me so much time. We had such a wonderful time. He let me take a photographer and of course those photographs treasured memories, as is a Christmas card where he apologised he still hadn't met me um, and he would make sure that we would meet up when he would stop travelling because by then it had become number one in America. I mean, it's it, it just my... I'm blown away by it still. That's insane. I didn't realise at the time that the credit could be with yourself. But then also a song that I do like, people might disagree, um, I could do. <laughs> that also. So some might say you gave, you gave and you took. <laughs> but that was a problem. Do, do, push my nose, take the drink. But I didn't have to the moves were on the back of the cover of the record you know you used to get sometimes in the sleeve and sometimes pictures on the back so each thing was drawn on the back so I didn't have to work out the moves I thought well why not because again it's a different sound it's a jolly sound I thought the kids would love it but it wasn't just wasn't just the kids and I have to say it was one of the first record gold discs I was given for making I could do a hit so very different to George Harrison uh, to Sonia to take that but I have to say um yeah whenever I hear it I think oh black lace <laughs> it was a song of the 80s it was it was definitely a fun song. You cannot take that away. But again, that's it. You gave and you took. <laughs> I love it. And also, oh, it's funny. You saw John Travolta, and he, in theory, agreed to dance with you next time he was on the show. So technically, he did say yes. Incredible. Um, we had a very small green room. That's where people meet before they go on to the studio floor. And I just come off doing my first slot. So my first slot was at 10 to seven. And then I closed the show at 9.18. So I came off and I walked into the green room and John Travolta was sitting there. I didn't know he was going to be there. And I went, I just, I don't know what possessed me. I opened my mouth. And I heard these words come out. Oh, nobody told you were in. If if I'd known, I'd have asked you to join me doing the exercises. Well, this poor chap wouldn't have known me from Adam. So he was charming, 
absolutely charming. He said, sure, okay, next time I'm in, I'll join you. Love it. But often friends, the bigger the stars, uh, the more engaging and the kinder and nicer they were. The, the, I met some wonderful people, which again is in the book. And you had to get up so early, I think about three in the morning. So did you experience very tired celebrities and did you know a bit like school if you're teaching an early class you soon learn which ones need to waken up a bit and which ones you need to give a bit of a like the, the grumpy ones give them half an hour did you soon learn with breakfast television you could see by uh, a guest's persona maybe their energy I'll just nod at that one I won't try and start a conversation you could just tell I think um, I could have got up later, but every morning I got up at 3 a.m. because I wanted to be wide awake. Yeah. I had to journey in. I had the luxury of a car pick me up every morning. I had to go to makeup, thank heavens. I had to go to sound to make sure sound would know exactly what music I was using because it would be different at 10 to 7 uh, and different again at 9.18 because you have different types of viewers on those two slots. So I had to go into the sound to check that they had, because I have experience of having a very big pop star on with me and having trained in, in the dressing room, I would take all my guests to the dressing room, go through exactly what we were going to do, because I would never want to show anyone up. I had the misfortune with a pop star once going live on the studio floor saying, this is his latest record, I hope you like it, and sound they played someone else's music entirely, and they all were alive. He was very professional. I will not yeah. name who that was, but I had misfortunes like that. When you're live, they, I could tell you lots of stories where things go wrong when you're live. But so I had to do that. I had to check sound. I had to check lighting. Um, so really, I was my own producer, which I loved. I'd had to go to wardrobe, so they, could, you know, I'd take my clothes in because again. I was able to choose all the clothes I wore. I had a wardrobe allowance. I mean, how lucky was I to have such an opportunity? So I wanted to do it right. I'd get up at three o'clock. I'd shower and get ready. Um, car would take me in. I would check all these things like a producer would check them. If I had guests, I would go through the exercises or the dance routine. So I was well prepared when I went on and people would say, how can you be so wide awake at 10 to seven? Well, that's because I've been up quite a few hours. Um, there's one female presenter that she would leave it to the last minute of coming in, but I couldn't do that. I needed to wash my hair. I needed to, to feel good about myself. And of course, go through the routine. So I would take my big beatbox every day into my dressing room and go through the routine over and over again um, so that I wasn't thinking about what I was doing. Because if Elaine, you raise your right arm to, above your head, to copy me exactly, I have to raise my left. Ah, right, uh -huh. yeah. So I would say, Elaine, to the viewers, to the camera, take your right arm up and I do my left. So you could mirror image me. So I would have to know my routine, if you like, backwards, because I'm saying to you what to do to avoid any accidents. I would mirror image. So I got used to, because I taught for years before I did TVAM, of having no mirrors and facing a class. So I was able to reverse everything I was doing. So there were all sorts of little things that people weren't aware of, but right up until the 10th year of me being on TVM, I get letters saying, does Lizzie know her left from her right? <laughs> they couldn't work out what I was doing. <laughs> Double the work. So that's, you're right, whenever I go to a class, it is in reverse. I never really gave that a thought. So you're, not only are you teaching it, but you're teaching it backwards. So that's extra work too, but that's funny that people thought that you didn't know your left from right. Oh, that's my right. <laughs> and it was sure that people could copy me correctly, obviously. So, and got people of all ages, all abilities at home doing it, or a lot of them would record it because it would be too early for them in the mornings and they'd go home and do it later in the day. And talking about that, just a couple more things, because then I want to move on to what else you've done. 
but I thought it was a beautiful full circle moment when Barbara Hulanicki made you some clothing when you had been a Biba fan in your teens. But again, as is the way, you can always buy the clothing that you adore. It all depends on what your income is. So you had that lovely full circle moment where she offers to make you some clothes. Can you imagine uh, your favourite designer saying, what would you like me to make? You know, you don't want to wear the um, obvious leotard and tights and track suits you want to say to people. You can wear loose clothing. It doesn't matter what you're wearing to, to do some sort of exercise or dance. Um, it was just amazing when I was at college, um, me and my great friend and I, we shared a college and we said, just don't have the money to go to uh, Bieber and see Barbara Huladiki, the wonderful designer, her clothes. But we would go to the, the shops in High Street Kensington and just gaze. If we were lucky, we could afford to buy maybe a lipstick or something that she was doing or, or some earrings. Because um, men and I really, with our three-year teacher training college that we were at, we charred, um, you know, cleaned in our holidays, or we babysat to get money um, to afford to become students. So to have the designer you'd revered and you couldn't afford, then years later saying, would you like me to make you some outfits to wear on television was, again, um, I still pinch myself. I think, what, what an amazing thing to happen to me. That was a joy of writing my memoir, which I love doing. I love writing it because I was recalling all the things, incredible things that had happened. And I wanted to share that with people that maybe would watch me on television, but had no idea, like you were saying, about what went into those 10 years. And another thing that doesn't surprise me, but I think people need to know, is that in 1987, so I think it was the rental video of the year was Back to the Future. And the most purchased video of the year was yours. So that's just like, we all know that in the 80s, the video was huge. So for the major rental to be Back to the Future and the major purchase to be yours, I would like for people that are listening that are maybe getting to know you now, just to understand that's the level we're talking about. So at the time, again, was that a lot for you to take in or was everything moving so fast that you were just producing what had to be the next yes, thing? Absolutely, you're so right. It, everything was moving so fast. Um, in, in those days, in 1987, fitness was all the rage. You had Jane Fonda and videos were selling enormously huge volumes. Um, in all categories. So you'd have Michael Jackson doing a video to go with his song. Uh, you had children's cartoons. And it was what was called sell-through. Um, people would go into the chain like Woolworths, which were huge at the time in selling videos. Um, and I was very, very fortunate. But this is the power of television. If you go back to what we were saying about Simon Cowell, if you're on television every day, you've got that exposure which of course we're seeing very much now with programs like Love Island and all the reality TV shows, you can become very famous very, very quickly. In those days, there were basically just three, four channels. So you had a very high profile and you were in a position where most people seemed to know you would travel around the streets or on trains and people would say, oh, hi, Mad Lizzie, which was fabulous. So it was, really because I was on television every day, but I love doing the programs for these videos. I ended up making about nine exercise and dance videos and then my children's characters. So yes, um, the day was very, very long. Um, I was writing uh, regularly for a national newspaper, TV Times, I had a column. I was doing a load of things, weird things as well, opening shops, <laughs> doing other TV programs, uh, quiz shows, great fun, you know, doing Give Us a Clue with Michael Parkinson or Blankety Blank, all these different things, um, which is just amazing that that came out of teaching fitness on television. Um, so, yeah. That's why I say I think writing a memoir, I think everyone should write a memoir because it brings back 
so many things in our fast-paced life that we forget. And like you say, with everything you've done, it always comes back to helping people and helping people to have opportunities. And like you say, just being there, knowing that there's a chance to make a difference for someone. And if you're sitting down and you're reflecting on what you've done, there must come a point where you think, I actually have made some really good decisions here. I've, I've obviously created the right career for myself. Did that, did that confirm to you with the memoir that you had obviously channeled in the right direction with your professional life? Yeah, the oddest thing was that on reflection, there was no career path. And I tried at the end of each chapter to make people think, what's coming next? Because I had no idea. I'll give you an example. Uh, my wonderful son was uh, in the Great Britain rowing team. He was a lightweight sculler. And when the Australian coach came over to train the Great Britain rowing squad, the women's squad and the lightweight squad, he said, I heard your mum was on television doing exercise. Um, you know, as a bit of fun, can she come in and teach all the girls, just as a one-off, all the women in my squad? So I thought, well, that's a challenge. And they said, I love a challenge. I thought, hmm, I'm not going to do what I did on television. My four minutes I call cabaret. I'm going to do a proper exercise class that I do off screen. So I went and taught the girls. And there must have been about 30 of them in their GB rowing kits. I gave a proper class. The next day, they went to be machine tested up at the University of London at Imperial College. And the professor said, why, why are your abs hurting? Why, why are you so sore? Why are you? And they said, well, we've just done the most extraordinary class uh, with this much older woman who's actually Ben's mum. And she said, well, this sounds really interesting. So the coach realized actually I was doing very, very strong exercises that could have an impact. So I got machine tested myself to see the strength, my abs, my obliques, my waist, and I came out pretty good. So I ended up teaching on the squad for two years, um, which was great. Another opportunity that I could never ever have planned. I've, I haven't planned anything in my career. I have now moved to retire down on the south coast of England. Oh no, I haven't. <laughs> when they realized that I could still teach funky dancing um, very energetically as I used to do, I just, because I am extremely fit, I have ended up teaching uh, in the village I'm at and also uh, doing other work, which I haven't come on to, which is the programs that I have originated to get into schools um, I'm going into colleges to do very very soon as well so I'm not retiring um, I'm carrying on still with all the different challenges as my son said you're no good if you haven't got a project mum I just love I suppose I love being able to give those opportunities let's if you failed learning that way how can I do something that's going to make you succeed another way and Ben, your son sounds like a chip off the old block because in the book, he pops up quite a lot and he's always doing something for you. And there's a lot of like getting in there and getting stuck in and doing things. So it's obviously a very active, busy family because you're always, as you say, involved in a project. And am I right in thinking too, um, you've taught in Italia Conte, Pineapple Dance Studios. These are all iconic places. But then when you move into the 90s and beyond, I find it fascinating that you had that choice where you probably could have maintained your television persona if you wanted to in that same way. I have a fair idea that there must have been lots of opportunities there if you wanted them, where they could have said, you can have this show, you can be on this, you can have so many different things. But no, you actually thought, let me get back into teaching children and the, the challenging aspects of it. Is that right? Could you have maintained the television if you wanted to in the same way? I, I thought, how do I want to see the rest of my life? I never thought I'd be on television. I've had amazing experiences. How can I use that? How can I use that television persona? So 
I've been teaching exercise in the evenings as well. And I had a class where <laughs> the women, as a joke, gave their men uh, a little card saying, you know, there's a one-off class with Lizzie, which they came to do, which was a mixture of aerobic and strength training. Um, and I think because my persona on television was it was simple exercise, because it had to be, everyone, when they saw me in person doing it, like the Great Britain Rowing Squad, um, thought, oh my goodness, she really is incredibly fit. I ended up teaching a whole class full of men, men only. So the whole thing snowballed. And one of those men, as I explain in the book, had been a grammar school head teacher. And we got together and we said, okay, we've got to update what's happening in schools with PE. Girls do not want to go, not all of them on a football pitch. They don't all want to play other games and sport. Why are we not doing dance in school? Why are we not using the latest pop records? Why aren't we getting the kids motivated on their feet that way? And so I started up a charity with one of the Olympic rowers who'd won two medals in Olympics because she felt the same way as I did. And we were also together doing this in the boys' juvenile prison, which is another story, but that's in the book. Does it go back to the original? Um, so then what I did was, with this charity called Creativity in Sport, we got backing from people um, that would give us small grants so we could train excluded school pupils that had no qualification to get our fitness qualification so that they could go out and teach other children at risk of exclusion as they got older, which is what we did for some time. I ran courses uh, for Job Centre Plus. Uh, that's where people in this country are out of work. And they would come to me. And I do all sorts of courses where it would give them the confidence of going back into work. We ran a lone parents course. A lot of this was all done through physical movement and through acting out. I was using the drama I'd done years ago back at the comprehensive school, a lot of socio-drama. Um, so it's the combination and my plea to any government now, and it's in the last chapter of the book, the arts and fitness is just so important on a school curriculum. It shouldn't be the first thing that goes, which is what is happening in a lot of schools. They're cramming in so much of the academic side we're in a situation, certainly in this country, where so many children since COVID, but it was happening before COVID, are just not going to school. And again, this is in the book, this is kids, they'd sign in, they bunk off school. So in a way, where I was teaching them in this huge converted church for several years, an amazing place, it was like a shelter, a haven for them, um, where they would come to me officially, but I would let them come at other times rather than walk the streets. And I was talking about very, very aggressive boys um, who really needed to be given, if you like, a home situation where they felt safe and they felt comfortable. Um, but believe me, it wasn't always a success. I didn't always have successes. And I detailed the suicide of one boy in great detail to show that we teachers actually have the most incredibly difficult job. And you can say the wrong thing, impact on that child at the wrong time, and it can live with you forever in the same way that the successes can live with you forever. And I have such admiration for teachers nowadays having have a doubly difficult job. It is challenging. And the creativity in sport, you go into detail in that, and it's Debbie, isn't it? Debbie sounds yeah. like a wonderful person because you seemed, and Julie, I think it was as well, everyone seemed to have each other's backs. Again, you should read the book if you want to be enlightened about the challenges, but also it's, there's some lovely emotional bits, some funny bits. There's, you name it, it's, it's such a full story of a memoir it's not leaving things out or you're thinking actually that didn't tell me too much there that skimmed over that there's a lot there and it's just so especially coming from teaching in colleges I found that really interesting because you were up for the challenge you had far more for me um your experiences were much more intense I was fortunate that any challenging experiences I had 
were quite contained within the college and it would be like a schools group and they might just be quite rowdy. But you had experiences that I had heard other people saying we're going into the prisons to teach or we're teaching these people that have got this situation. You detail it in a way that actually took away the fear for me of teaching those groups where you had just heard about it, but nobody actually spoke about it. So that's another reason why I think the book is so interesting for anyone who has either been a student, is a teacher, as you say, the parents too. I think a lot of parents don't understand the teacher's point of view and it is really, you go into a level where it's really interesting, really eye-opening, but it's still inspirational. Even the challenging bits, you still go away thinking, I understand a bit more now. I think too, there's one chapter that I really wanted to get across that if we hadn't led the lives of some of the most humongously difficult lives these children go through, that we expect them to go to school and sit at a desk when they have come from the most troubled backgrounds. So how are we going to expect them to concentrate when their lives are that miserable and they're busy, busy coping. And the three lives that I detail, or four uh, that I detail, all gave me permission to write about it. And then I met each one of them in cafes or wherever we met and read it to them. And they were delighted that I could tell their stories so that teachers and other people would understand what it must be like to come from such a troubled home to go to school. Why would you want to go to school and learn when you can't have any love and things of protection that a child should have? So that was important, but obviously I had to change the names because they had relatives that, that would be recognizable. But it was interesting that they wanted their stories told in the same way that there's a whole chapter about a football hooligan who started up uh, the Tottenham Hotspur football gang, the youth gang. And he came out of prison and he came on one of my courses and he was the most extraordinary guy. I learned so much from him. Um, very, very intelligent chap. Um, and it was interesting how he could see that his role as a leader of these gangs where they and I, again, um, I think if you're not aware of football violence in this way, this chapter is quite an eye opener because I detail what I'd learned from him as to what the gangs do and what they still do. Um, and I'm delighted after a couple of years, he actually did turn his life around because he went back into Wormwood Scrubs, back to prison for breaking his court orders. Um, and he still wrote to me from prison and said, keep up the good work. And he allowed me to do that letter in the book. Um, so I can see that all the kids that I taught want the stories told to give hope to the next generation. And it's it would be lovely if the kids that are, are really struggling um, could read it, but I'm, they're not going to obviously probably have that, that opportunity. Although you can get the book from Amazon, you can order it anywhere and from bookshops. But I would love kids like that to, to read and realize they're not alone. And that these kids have made successful lives from the most awful starts. And there are loads of teachers out there doing what I've been doing. Do not think this is just me. There are loads of teachers. The vicar in the church um, that we were in, that they had transformed in the day. They took all the pews so that the youth could have it and people like our charities could have it. He's now working with the Archbishop of Canterbury. There are loads of people around doing amazing, amazing work. But because I suppose I had a high profile, that's how I'm able to get it across. And I did say, um, when I explain a lot of the things that go on in schools, they can't sack me. <laughs> <laughs> half of teachers to show what some of the schools are really like and what goes on that's true because I think a lot of people must feel as if 
they can't say too much. And when it is a struggle and you don't know how to navigate a situation, you reminded me my very first class that I taught as a college lecturer, um, they said, right, you've got, I'll never forget, it was a Tuesday afternoon, and they said, you've got a small class of, I think it was eight people, and you're going to teach them an introduction to aromatherapy, and they've all had head injuries. And I thought, what do you mean by head injuries? So I didn't have a clue. I was 25, fresh out of university, and I thought, do you mean head injuries as in can they understand me? Can they communicate with me? So I went in completely blind and I thought, how am I? So I actually took the oils and I thought, let's not talk. Let's do. Let's play with the oils. Let's smell the oils. And do you know what? Everyone was actually, they were fine. It was head injuries where they might have had some um, amnesia at some point or they might have been getting over something. It wasn't dramatic. But I have found that schools and colleges have got a habit of throwing you in and then you've got to discover what the issues are there and then. And that reminded me of the book because you went into a school and you didn't know, you'd asked for challenging students, which again, I bow down to you for that. You actually yeah. asked for that, but you it's, didn't know what you were getting. It's not me being good, it's what I wanted to yeah. do. But not enough so, people want to do that. Um, yes. Um, there are so many bits missing in my book, which is why I would love to write another one. I had the fortune to go to America to do American te television. I was taken over there by a big agent that had seen me here. That's not in the book. Uh, there are loads of stories that aren't. Um, one of the stories connected with what you were just saying is that um, I went back to my teacher training college as a lecturer for a year. And I said to them, would you let me take the students that have got to teach in difficult schools? Can I be their tutor? Because I didn't want to be rude to them, but these lecturers had been lecturing in college for so many years. They were out of touch of what it was really like to go into a classroom like you were as a new student. Um, and it needed someone that had experienced it recently because things change, behavior changes. Um, and it, that's, that's something I would write about too. I absolutely empathize with what you're saying. But you know, it was one of the most memorable experiences. I went in not knowing what to expect. That's why I connected so much with your experience because it stays in my memory as one of the most wonderful connecting moments where we all found very quickly our middle ground. And that's where I thought there's nothing better than teaching when it all slots into place. And it might not happen every time and it might take a little bit to warm people up and break down barriers. But when you get there, you can't beat it. It's the best feeling in the world. I said that earlier, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be teaching and communicate. It's all about communication. It's how you approach people, isn't it? And how you do it. Yeah. Um, and probably like me, you're so enthusiastic about your subject, you can't help but get that across. So they quickly become engaged. And I've always said, a teacher is more than a teacher. A teacher is an actor because you also perform. You're larger than life. If you've got a huge class in front of you, or I've, I've done, I've had hundreds of kids when I've been doing projects in front of me. So you're larger than life. You're a social worker. You're a parent at a time looking after them as well. You, you're all these different roles that you play. And isn't that wonderful that we can do that? Yeah, nothing beats it. And I'd love to know, just as we're finishing up now, what are your plans? So would a second book be in the pipeline possibly? You were saying that retirement's not on the agenda and I'm so pleased to hear that. I would love to write another book. Um, this book I had to publish myself. It wasn't taken on by someone. Um, and I'm hoping I will get taken on by someone if this book is successful um, so that I can put in the bits that aren't in there. But I would also, as I say in my last chapter of this book, I had to find out why boys and girls were going through schools unable to read. How is it 
that in 2019 in England, in this country, 179,000 pupils left primary school without the proper reading skills. Now, after COVID, they said it was 200,000 and they're blaming COVID. Well, in my mind, there's not that much difference between what was happening before, 179,000. Those, those children are never going to catch up, which is why I was teaching them in prison how to read. I was teaching an ex-gang leader in Reading how to read. And he had kids of his own and he couldn't read. So it was always catch up. So the programs that I've worked out that I was able to go and do in lots and lots of primary schools, I would just put in a book so the parents could do it and teachers could learn from it. And if they wanted, it's a whole new way of teaching um, all through movement, all through movement and combining PE games. Um, I don't know how many balls, tennis balls, Debbie and I and my assistant um, marked up. We marked up hundreds of balls, one, two, three, so that in PE, if we were doing multiplication in the classroom, we had them running around doing relay races, using the balls, saying once two is two and passing the ball and throwing the ball. There's so many creative things you can do. Um, so I would put those all in a book to give people lots of ideas and it might spark off for them ideas. Oh, I hope someone's listening that can do that. I would even send this podcast to the governments that somebody's listening. That makes so much sense. Oh, Lizzie, it's been lovely. Um, I got your book on Kindle, so I know that you can download it. And I wasn't normally a Kindle type person because I like the physical book. But I will say on the positives is that it's actually really convenient. So I'm actually now more of a Kindle person than I was because any opportunity where I could just whip out my phone and start reading. So you changed my mind on having a digital download on books. So thank you for that because previously I thought, no, I want I want the physical. So yes, I'm, I'm on board with Kindle books now, but where did you say people can get it from? Get it on Amazon or any bookshop. If it's not in the bookshop, we'll order it. Um, uh-huh. And I've been very, very fortunate. There have been quite a few articles um, written about me in the national press about the book that people can Google in. Um, I've used the title Mad, as I was called, and it's, people still say hi, Mad Lizzie, to me in the street. It, I use that title Mad about the boys two ways. One, I was known as Mad, but also I am Mad about what's happening in education. We should be doing a lot more, or they're not going to take away how difficult it is, but we need to really progress. That makes, again, everything you say just connects. It makes sense and it connects, especially with anyone who has either experienced the teaching of it, or as you say, the parents and the people that go through it all themselves. So thank you, Lizzie, for taking the time to speak to me again. I just urge everyone to read the book. It is entertaining, it's insightful, and you learn so much. So thank you, Lizzie. Oh, thank you, Elaine. I've really enjoyed hearing some of your stories too. It's been fascinating speaking with you.